you guys. You know, uh, central to Jesus' Bible is this book called Leviticus, and we're going to be going through this book for the next several days together, and I know you're excited out of your mind, so contain yourself, all right? Um, but, th- but this book is absolutely incredible if you engage in it in the right way. And today what we're going to be looking at is how this book opens. And it opens with this concept of something called sacrifice. The first seven chapters of Leviticus revolve around this concept that is so foreign to us today um, of sacrifice. Maybe not foreign in in a general sense, but certainly foreign in the way Leviticus puts it. And what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about, um, first of all, what these sacrifices are and why you did them. And then as we go through this journey together, what I'm hoping is we can bring it all together at the end and see why it is actually so vitally important for us as a New Testament people of God. So for time's sake, we are not going to be able to read through the entire sacrificial law here together today. (laughs) Yeah, contain yourselves, I know, right? But... I do encourage you to follow along and be glancing in the book of Leviticus as we go. And what I'd like to do is just summarize those first several chapters for you, beginning at Leviticus 1. So, what you see is five sacrifices in Leviticus. Let me go through each of the five with you briefly. The first, if you're using some kind of modern translation, is probably called something like a burnt offering or a whole burnt offering or something like that, right? The name of this sacrifice in Hebrew is Ola. Give me an Ola. Ola. Now, the way that you say the word the in Hebrew is you just go like this. <laughs> All right, give me a. <laughs> we put a the sound on the front. Hebrews would just go. So if you wanted to say the whole burnt offering, you wouldn't say hola, you'd say hola. So give me a hola. And it's where we get our word holocaust from. A whole burnt offering. The idea actually in World War II among Jewish people undergoing this, 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 this suffering and this, this, this offering up to God, watching their lives be spent in forfeit, they named their plight after this offering. We are a holocaust, a whole burnt offering being given up to God. And what's unique about this sacrifice in Leviticus is that whatever you were offering, you would burn in its entirety as an offering to God. See, most sacrifices you'd keep a part back. You you would take something, a bull or a lamb or a goat or whatever it was, and you'd slaughter it and you'd give a portion, but then you would keep the rest. Maybe it would go to the priests in the temple. Maybe it would go uh, to your family. Maybe it was something that you would use for a celebration or a feast, but with the hola, every last bit was offered up to God. Now, a second sacrifice is called the grain offering. Some translations will call it the cereal offering. Though for me, I always got like this picture of some guy offering like lucky charms on the altar, you know? It just doesn't work for me. But a grain offering. While the first revolves around offering an animal, the second would revolve around offering some kind of grain product. Maybe it's the grain itself. Maybe it's baked into bread or or a pancake, it'll even say, or something like 
that. And unlike the hola, the grain offering was a sacrifice in which you would give the first portion over to God, but the rest would be given to the priests. It would be given to the priests to support them, to support the temple complex, to be used at their disposal to help the poor and the needy within the confines of, of Jerusalem and the temple and the land. And, and so this, uh, this offering would be of the agrarian nature. Now the third offering you'll see is called the Shalamim. Give me a Shalamim. In English you'll see it translated something like fellowship offering, peace offering. If you know anything of Hebrew, you can see the word shalom tucked up in there. And the concept is very similar. The concept of shalom being, it's an offering of peace, but maybe better put an offering of wholeness or prosperity. Like the ola or like the grain offering, you would take a portion of the animal or you would take a portion of the grain and you would offer it up to God. But the rest of it, and when I say the rest, I mean the lion's share rest, was saved for you. Party time. You ever see how much meat comes off a bowl? And you would offer the best portion to God, but the rest would be there to share with well, whoever you're looking to have fellowship with. Whoever you're looking to make peace with. I almost think about it like the peace pipe going around. The sacrifice is made going, God, I want connection and community with you, with your people, with these people here, even if I don't know them or I'm meeting them for the very first time. And this sacrifice was instrumental to that. Now, these first three sacrifices are interesting. Because if you look at Leviticus closely, it never says you have to give them. They're voluntary. I mean, it kind of assumes, it says when you give it, so it's assuming that of course you will, but there's no prescription laid out, do this for that reason, or you better do this if you want. No, it's just God here is a sacrifice, here is an offering that I want to give to you. Now, the last two are a little bit different. We come to the fourth, and it isn't a voluntary offering. It is a required offering, and it is called a sin offering. Like the former offerings, you would take something, an animal or a grain product, and it says that if you sinned unintentionally against Yahweh... You would bring this sacrifice. You would bring a sacrifice to atone for your sin. More on that in a little bit. The fifth one you'll see will often be translated something like guilt offering, but I want to give you this name instead. It's called the Asham. Give me an Asham. Asham probably translates a little bit better as reparations, liability. There's an idea of guilt to be sure, but not in the sense of, oh, I'm so guilty, I've got to do something. It's more in the sense of, I've messed up. I've cheated you, or I've done something wrong, or I've, I've not carried this out the way I need, and now I've got to make it right. I need to pay you back for the, the damage that I've done. I need to pay you back for the cost that you incurred. I need to honor whatever reparations or liability that I have for you. So in Leviticus, we have five offerings, 
three that are voluntary, two that are not, the Ola, the Graim, the Shelamim, the Sin, and the Asham. Now, here's the thing. Why do you do them? Why do you do them? Especially in light of the first three where it doesn't give any clear reasons. Well, if you were to start reading through these first several chapters of Leviticus, you would see a couple of themes coming up again and again. Here's the first reason. It was an aroma pleasing the Yahweh. Just kind of a weird way of saying, you know why you do it? Because God liked it. And shouldn't that be enough? I mean, don't we do things for the people that we love, that they like? And if we do that in our, in our relationships naturally, how much more when it comes to God? Now, it's, it's not like the idea that God just like loves the smell of a good, like, you know, Texas barbecue here, right? Or, or, or that, you know, somehow God gets off on like incense-laced pancakes or something. I mean, I mean, really, who wouldn't? But see, it's more than that. It's because everything that's offered in those five sacrifices, especially in that world and in their worldview, was something that would fundamentally be important to you. Chances are you were a farmer. Chances are you were a shepherd. Chances are they didn't have Walmart or Meyer down the block and you raised your own food. Chances are that animal life and agrarian life was intricately intertwined with your day-to-day life. And these things that you would offer as sacrifices would be valuable to you. They would be your livelihood. They would be your security. They would be your status and your wealth and a symbol of who you are and what you've gotten in this world. They would be, they would be your investment. Animals procreate, right? It's giving things that are fundamentally important to you, valuable to you, and saying, God, what is important to me, I am now giving to you. And to me, this is such a worldview difference from from the way Christianity comes across so often today. For Christians today, I think most of God is, God, what do you do for me? People seek God because they're looking for something, because they're trying to shore up their eternity or, or... find some answers or meaning to their life. They're, you know, we come to church on Sundays because we want to feel good. Because we want our weekly therapy session. We're looking for that pick-me-up. God, what is it that you're going to do for me? But see, Leviticus turns all of that on its head. Because Leviticus is driven by the question, God... What can I do for you to show you that I love you, to commit to you, to show you that I'm grateful, to show you that I'm thankful because you like it, because you are worthy and not me, because you are holy and not me. This is why Paul in the New Testament will write this. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God because fundamental to sacrifice is saying 
You are worth more than me. Here is part of me given to you. Now, there's a second reason laced throughout Leviticus as to why God called his people to offer these sacrifices. And here it is. To make atonement. Big church word, right? Let's deconstruct it a little. Atonement's one of these fishy words because it can mean different things in different contexts. And if you try to like pin it down to just one and make it work everywhere, it just doesn't happen. It's kind of like the word light, you know? Is light something that you see or is light the absence of weight? It means different things in different contexts. Are you with me? Now, one thing that you see with atonement, it almost works like this. It has the idea of to decontaminate. Now, I know a lot of people that have gotten hung up with God, with this idea of him being holy and us not, as though somehow what sacrifices are about is that, well, we've got to win him over, we've got to bribe him, we've got to, we've got to, oh God, will you like me? Oh God, can you? Something like that. I want you to think about it differently here today. Think about the fact that God made something like the sun. Right? I don't mean S-O-N, I mean S-U-N, like the sun. Now think for a moment of all of the energy that's in the sun. Now think of what it means to come into closer and closer proximity to that ball of unrestrained energy. What happens? Right? Is that the sun's fault? Is it because the sun doesn't like you? Is it because the sun sits smugly back in the center of the universe going, look at me, revolve around me, I am great and you're not? No. It's just because that's what the sun is. How much more the God who made the sun and hundreds of billions of other ones like it. What kind of energy presence is that? And so fundamentally, there is this idea that when we come into the presence of energy like that, you're never the same. It does something to you. And you have to protect yourself, shield yourself against the you know, onslaught of it, or decontaminate from it because of its effect. Let me give you an example. Fukushima nuclear reactor, Japan, 2011. Remember when it melted down? Pictures of what it looked like. Imagine the hotbed of energy in that area, even today. I mean, imagine what a Geiger counter would do. Curious, if you were to open the one ads, you're looking for a job, and, 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 and you were to find, hey, six figures, 100 grand a year, go there, no protection equipment needed, would you do it? Right? Why? Because cancer ain't worth 100 grand. Because if you go there, there is so much energy, you'll never be the same. And so what you see within these Levitical sacrifices is that when you come into the presence of God who came down into your midst, you have to almost get on the hazmat suit 
Or, or when you come out, you got to kind of do that decontamination scrub. So what you see is them slaughtering these animals, and they're, they're rubbing blood everywhere. They're coating everything in blood. They're, they're covering things with blood like a heat shield, trying to decontaminate or protect against the energy. Does that make sense? Now, second to this idea is substitution. The idea behind atonement that... I am giving a ransom or a substitute or a payment, if you will, for something that I owe. There's something not right here, and I'm trying to make it right by giving something. And what we see in Live 1 through 5 is the giving of animals or the giving of blood. It's the idea that I owe something for something that's not right. Here's how the New Testament puts it. The wages of sin is death. What we owe for sin is that that's what we've earned. Glad we worked so hard for it, aren't you? This is what our lives earn. But God does not want you to die. Do you know that? That this thing called death is not what God ever intended? God does not want you to die. Death hurts. And it doesn't just hurt in the moment. It hurts as it lingers on. God is not a God of death. God is a God of life. Isn't it Jesus who said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am not the God of the dead, but the living. But if death is what we owe, God, in his desire for you not to die, allowed substitutes. That a ransom could be paid, that, that a substitution could be made, that something could die on your behalf. And so what we see throughout these sacrifices is the killing of bulls, the killing of lambs, the killing of goats, the idea that this animal's life is forfeit because of me. This animal is dying to pay a price for me. And it was bloody. See, it wasn't some sanitary thing where you you had other people take care of it. When you went to the temple to offer the sacrifice, you killed the lamb. You slit its throat. You put your hands upon it. I mean, imagine what it's like bringing your kids to the temple. Imagine what it's like raising this little lamb from the time it was born. You've even named the thing, which you never want to do if you're a farmer. You've named the thing, and you've fed the thing, and you've cared for the thing, and you love the thing, and it would curl up with you at night, and, and your kids would play with it. And then you lead them to the temple one day and ask them to lay their hands on its head while it looks into your eyes and slit its throat. This innocent lamb is paying a price for me. See, central to these sacrifices was this idea of blood. Blood is a symbol of life. Blood is a symbol of death. Look at how Leviticus itself will describe it. This was a bloody affair. And with this blood, it was an ever-telling sign. Sin exacts a price. I mean, how often do we think of sin as something purely theoretical? concept or an idea or a philosophy that that once it's done it just kind of pushes away that isn't true in God's economy 
I wonder if we had a slit throats like this if we would think about sin differently. And all of this comes swirling together and starts rushing in to the New Testament and how their writers begin to describe the reality of Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. Because fundamental to Christian theology and at the basic core of what New Testament teaching is about is that when Jesus died on a cross, he was being given up as a sacrifice for you. See, at some level, an animal is never going to equal a human. Am I right? Humans are made in the image of God. Not animals. So at some level, even though there's a substitution there, it's never really quite enough, is it? It's never really of the same worth for what I owe. But what if? What if God were to die? What if a God was to be a sacrifice? Certainly that would be enough for a human, wouldn't it? Certainly a God. I mean, a God's, I mean if, if, if gobs, of God, gobs upon gobs of animals equal a human, certainly a, a, a God is worth more than gobs of humans, isn't it? What if a God were to die? What if God were to come and be that sacrifice? Would that be enough to pay the blood price and make atonement for all? Listen to these words that come out of Hebrews. As the New Testament begins to write about this, it says this. These Levitical sacrifices are an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not ever able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. This Levitical law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for those sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he would offer the same sacrifices which could never take away sin. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for all things to be brought beneath him, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are holy in him. This is why when you look through the New Testament, you see things like John saying the blood of Jesus cleanses us, decontaminates us, hazmat scrubs us, from all sin. It's why you see John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming his way, crying out things like, Look, the Lamb of God. What's he saying? 
the sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. And for these first followers of Jesus, coming to grips with this fundamental fact of who Jesus is and what he does, it affected everything and how they thought and what they believed and how they lived. Let me just read you this, this one passage that comes out of Hebrews on the heels of what I just read. He says this, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of, of, of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not, giving up, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more, as you see the day approaching, let us be a new people, a holy people. Because the great irony of the New Testament is that all of the sacrifices in Leviticus are now something that Jesus makes for you. And so you people here that come with your guilt and your sin, and you, you people who come here with your unworthiness and unholiness. The point of the New Testament is that Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice for you. You have been atoned for. And it is an aroma pleasing to God, and it should change everything. So brothers and sisters, let us do this in light of what God has offered up for you. Let's draw near to him with full assurance, not with fear. Not with fear or doubt. Will he accept me? Will he forgive me? No, because the price has been paid. Let us hold on to that. Let's hold on to it unswervingly. Maybe an anchor for you. And let's spur one another on, encouraging one another and meeting together and, and reminding each other of what Jesus did for you. Because that's what it's all about. So I, I uh, invite you to rise. And so let's actually begin doing it this morning. You know, if you have sin in your life, guilt or shame, God long ago set up a a way for that to be atoned for. And it's Jesus who atones for that today. So let's approach his throne of grace. Let's approach his, the blood of this lamb and grab hold of that forgiveness and atonement today. Would you say these words with me? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Do you hear the sacrificial language coming through? Take a moment. Come to God personally today. Confess your sins to the one who paid it all.